Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we remember the words of the Lord Jesus himself. He said to his disciples, A new command I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Father, we pray that that love indeed will become fresh again in our mind and in our hands this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As many of you know, we have a pet dog at home, a beagle, uh, known as Clive, named after Clive Staples Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis, and we love Clive to bits. He is so warm, he's so affectionate, he just wants to hop up on the couch and be with us and be anywhere where we are, and Sunday mornings are an absolute tragedy for him. Because the entire family leaves and comes down here to church and from the backyard he can hear everybody from church gathering together and all the laughter. He can even hear the music and the singing from here. And because he's such a, a people dog, he just wants to be down here. And so occasionally he's even dug under the back fence and made his way down to church just to be amongst uh, people. He's so kind, he's so warm, he's so affectionate, particularly uh, with people. But it's another story when it comes to other dogs or any other animal in reality. You may have heard the statement, he doesn't play well with other dogs. And that's definitely true of our beloved Clive, sadly. If we were to introduce him to your pet dog or your new pet cat or your feathered friend, we would have to hold Clive so tightly, even kind of clamp his mouth closed that he wouldn't just bark and bark and bark and seek to devour your furry friend. Sadly, people can be a little bit like Clive, can't they? People can be warm and affectionate to some, but also bark at or about others. Maybe you've experienced that in your home. I know today is Mother's Day, but maybe your family life uh, is not always filled with love and happiness, and maybe there is some barking there. Maybe you've experienced in your, in your work life, or even more tragically, uh, here at church, maybe you've experienced that as well. And we must remember that Jesus unequivocally commands his disciples, you must love one another. A new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But not every Christian, let alone any other person in the world, is easy to love at times. There are difficult people, there are even difficult Christians, aren't there? And living with them and loving them can be very challenging at times. So how do we love others? Particularly those that just have this gift of annoying us. How do we love them with the love of Christ? Well, we are the first group of Christians or the first church ever to struggle with this idea. In fact, as we began our sermon series last week, looking at Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, the very relationship that Paul has had with this church in Corinth at best could be described as strained because there is great relational tension uh, between them. Let me just recap some of the, the background uh, to their relationship and you might get a sense of the tension that's there in their relationship. Uh, they thought Paul was difficult and Paul thought they were difficult uh, at times. The history went like this. Sometime after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, 
and before he wrote 2 Corinthians, some of the people in the church in Corinth turned their back on Paul. When Paul was there, he, he confronted some particular issues that they'd asked for some advice on. And one particular advice was, you know, what to do with immorality and sin in the church. And Paul said, you've got to confront that. You've got to take sin and God's holiness seriously. But some didn't like what Paul said. And so they turned their back on him. And there may have been some false teachers there trying to encourage them not to listen to Paul and, and that kind of stuff as well. And so in response to that, we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that Paul did two things. Firstly, he paid what he called a painful visit. No doubt where he turned up and it was a painful visit because he had to rebuke them again. Guys, you're not taking sin or God's holiness seriously. You need to wake up to this. And the second thing that he did was write them what he calls a sorrowful letter. A letter that filled him with anguish and, and much tears as he wrote it because no doubt in that letter he confronted them again about taking sin in the community seriously. And then on top of all that, Paul said that he had plans to go and visit them again. But he changed those plans and he didn't, didn't visit them. Instead, he sent a colleague to go uh, check on how they are going. We know that was Titus. So if you put all of those different elements together, you may be able to get a sense of the tension or the frustration in the relationship between the Apostle Paul and the Corinthian church. Strained at best. But there are signs that the tension in the relationship hasn't destroyed the relationship either because we have this letter, 2 Corinthians, which in historical and chronological order is really 3 Corinthians because there was the sorrowful letter in between the two and sadly, it's not the irony, but it's a sorrowful letter, and sadly we don't actually have it. It's been lost uh, in the ground of ancient history uh, somewhere. And in our passage today, right towards the beginning of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, Paul addresses the tension in the relationship between he and the Corinthians. And I think there's much wisdom that we can learn from what Paul writes about living and loving difficult people uh, today. I'm trying to try and summarise what Paul teaches in these three little graphics to do with your hand. And I hope it helps you remember Paul's teaching uh, tonight. Loving people when it's hard. How do you do it? Thumbs up, open hand, and handshake. If you can remember those pictures and remember uh, that hand, then that will help you to love people when it's hard. So firstly, thumbs up. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, assume the best, thumbs up, not the worst. Assume the best in a person, not the worst. A close reading of 2 Corinthians 1 and 2 reveals that some in Corinth have taken Paul's decision not to visit them as evidence that he is fickle with his word. He says one thing, but he needs another, and he doesn't care about you, Corinthians, at all. They've assumed the worst rather than the best in Paul. And so most of chapter 1 and indeed into chapter 2, Paul needs to defend himself, to set the record straight, that he only and has ever had their best interest at heart. So jump in there at verse 12 where Paul says this, For this is our confidence. The testimony of our conscience is that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you with God-given sincerity and purity, not by fleshly wisdom, but by God's grace. 
In other words, Paul is saying, guys, my conscience is clear. I've examined myself and I am confident before God that I have only and ever been sincere in my conduct in the world, but particularly toward you, Corinthians. I'm not an imposter. I am an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 13, he writes to them uh, saying that they've only ever understood part of what he's been on about, and he wants them to understand the full story. Have a look at verse 13. He says, Now we are writing nothing to you other than what you can read and also understand. I hope you will understand completely as you have partially understood us. In other words, Corinthians, it's time you understand what's been going on. It's time that you know the full story and not just simply believe what you hear my enemies saying about me. And then in the rest of the chapter, Paul moves to answer the charge that he is fickle with his word, that he says one thing but means another. Have a look at verse 15. I plan with this confidence to come to you first so you can have a double benefit and to go on to Macedonia with your help, then come to you again from Macedonia and be given a start by you on my journey to Judea. So when I planned this, was I irresponsible? Or what I plan, do I plan in a purely human way? So that I say yes, yes, and no, no, simultaneously. Can you see behind that Paul's detractors saying, he says one thing, then he means another. He says yes when he means no, and he says no when he means yes. You can't trust his word. He's irresponsible. He's fickle. But Paul responds, verse 18. As God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, and Silvanus and Timothy, did not become yes and no. On the contrary, a final yes has come in him. For every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore the Amen is also spoken through him by us for God's glory. Now it is God who strengthens us with you in Christ and has anointed us. He has also sealed us and given us the Spirit as a down payment in our hearts. In other words, what Paul is saying there is, my personal word to you has always matched my preached word to you. What I preached to you was the faithfulness of God, that all of his promises have been fulfilled in Christ, that Christ is God's final yes and amen to his word and his promises from long ago. And the spirit that inspired all of those promises is now living in me. How could I be anything else but faithful to that word? My personal word to you has always been in line with my preached word to you. As God is faithful, I am faithful, says the Apostle Paul. I say yes when I mean yes, and I say no when I mean no. And Paul was right, because if the Corinthians had really been listening to him, they would have recalled that he is absolutely faithful to his word. His travel plans were never set in stone. At the end of 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul talks again about his travel plans through Macedonia and Corinth and all of that kind of stuff. And he says this, and notice some of the conditions that are in there. I will come to you after I pass through Macedonia, for I will be travelling through Macedonia, and perhaps I will remain with you or even spend the winter 
so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. I don't want to see you now just in passing, for I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord allows. You see, Paul's travel plans, like everything in Paul's life, was contingent on the will of the Lord. He told the Corinthians what he hoped to do, not what he ever had guaranteed that he will do. He's not broken his word. His yes is still yes, and his no is still no. He is faithful, just as God is faithful. And although the Corinthians have assumed the worst about Paul, he hasn't come because he doesn't care, or because he's not faithful to his word, Paul goes on to say that he had a good reason for changing his mind. Have a look at verse 23. He says, I call on God as a witness on my life, that it was to spare you that I did not come to Corinth. There's a good reason. I came. I chose not to come to spare you from something. We'll talk more about that uh, in just a moment. But I want you to see what Paul is doing here in this chapter. He's reorienting the Corinthians in their relationship that's been broken at worst or strained at best. They have assumed the worst in him when love assumes the best, not the worst. And sadly, isn't that all too common, even in the church still today? We can be so quick, can't we, to pile on each other, and particularly Christian leaders, when they don't do what we expect, and we impugn evil motives against them. They must be lazy, or they must not care, or they must love that other thing better than they love me. Even though in most cases, like the Corinthians, they only see part of the story. They don't know everything that's going on in people's lives. And when it comes to someone complaining to you about another Christian, isn't it all too easy for us just to believe them straight away? Oh, yeah, okay, that sounds about right. You must be right. Even though you don't know the full story, and maybe even they don't know the entire story as well. And yet we play the judge and jury of others, even though we are ignorant. And don't we see this all too common? We even do this with Christians we've never even met. You know, we hear stories about the megachurch pastor overseas and what they've done or not done. And someone tells us, you know, isn't that really bad? I'm like, yeah, that is really bad. I'm never going to listen to them on YouTube ever again. Like, I don't even know that person or what's going on. And yet I feel that I can judge them. We do it all too quickly. And I know that I can do that as well. And if you think that you have a tendency to do either of those things, can I encourage you to pray and to ask God for help? Pray things like this. Lord, help me to be slow to turn disappointment with someone into judgment of someone. Help me to be slow to do that. Lord, help me to be slow to believe every complaint that I hear. Give me courage to tell the person complaining to me to stop until they sort it out with that person first. And when a decision is made in church, Lord, that I don't like, help me to see the best in that decision and not just the worst. And help me to offer something positive to make it even better. Now, I'm not saying in all of that that there's no room for critical reflection and examination or even judgment of your leaders or of each other. But we do that with thumbs up. We do that knowing that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We belong to the same team. We're there to cheer each other on, not like dogs tear each other apart. 
thumbs up. Love also means open hand, or I'm calling it, give time to change, not just time to charge. Sometimes we think that loving someone means that we always need to be with them. Sometimes we think that loving someone means that we always need to point out their weaknesses or their failures, but that's not always the case. Listen again to the Apostle Paul at the beginning of chapter 2. He says, in fact, I made up my mind about this. I would not come to you on another painful visit. For if I cause you pain, then who will cheer me other than one being hurt by me? I wrote this very thing so that when I came, I wouldn't have pain from those who ought to give me joy. Because I'm confident about all of you, that my joy will also be yours. For I wrote to you with many tears, out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart. Not that you should be hurt, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. And I think we can paraphrase what Paul said there like this. Corinthians, you remember how painful my last visit was. I had to confront you with your acceptance of sin in your community, a rebuke that you know you rejected. And so then I felt compelled to write to you a letter, a letter that filled me with great anguish and tears, urging you to take sin seriously in the church. I couldn't come a third time and charge at you and rebuke you again. I don't want to seem to be controlling you. Rather, my absence gives you time and gives you space under God to sort out your house, to change and to grow. And I think that's similar to what parents might do. You can imagine parents going away for their wedding anniversary or a holiday and leaving their teenage kids or their young adult children to look after the house. And as it often happens, there's a friend of the parents who just happens to drop around to the house while the parents were away and discover the absolute shambles that the house is in. There's been parties there and parties here and there. They get on the phone to the parents and you need to know what your kids are doing. They've absolutely trashed the place. Now, the parents at that point have a choice to make, don't they? They could charge on home right then and there. But what's going to confront them? The mess. And what are they going to be compelled to do? To rebuke. To call out their kids. And it's not going to be a happy reunion, is it? The parents have another choice, though, that they can make. Rather than giving time to charge, they could give time for the kids to change. They could maybe pick up the phone, send them an email, message them on Facebook, say, I've heard that there's been some wild parties at the house whilst we've been away. Just letting you know that we're going to be home in a couple of days' time. It'd be nice for the house to be in order. Now imagine the kids listen to that and they change. And when the parents come home, is that going to be a happy reunion or a sad reunion? It'll be a much happier reunion, won't it? The parents could have charged home and rebuked the kids and called them out. But in choosing to give them time, they're learning and growing. Sometimes we think that loving someone means that we always need to be with them. But sometimes our absence can also be a demonstration of love. Particularly the parents with the kids, they're showing their love for the kids because they trust them to make things right. Paul is not afraid to confront the Corinthians. He doesn't go because he's scared of them or because he wants to avoid conflict. No, he's charged at them a couple of times already. 
But he's choosing out of love not to charge, but to give them time to realise the error of their ways and to change and grow. And I think we could do well to remember that in our relationships as well. There are times when we must demonstrate our love for another by our absence, even though that causes us pain and may even cause them pain as well. You know, you think about a child starting school for the first time. It's a demonstration of love for that parent to actually leave, isn't it? As much as their heart aches and they want to stay with their child, as much as their child may want them to stay with them. But if that child is going to learn and grow, the parent needs to leave. It is a good demonstration of love. In marriage counselling, we talk often about hitting the pause button. When we feel that your anger towards your partner is like a can of Coke being shaken up, you want to sit that thing down. You want to press the pause button. You open that can up after it's been shaken. You're just going to spray that everywhere. And in your emotion, spraying your anger everywhere is never going to be a helpful thing. In church life, Pastors do their best to be shepherds of God's people. But they are not omnipresent. Sadly, I'm not like Jesus. I can't be everywhere at the same time. Our limitations as pastors are meant to point you to Christ, who is the ever-present good shepherd. You can always turn to him in your need. In other human relationships, we know from psychologists that developing a codependency on somebody is not healthy for your relationship, or let alone your own mental health. And so if a friend's partial absence from you causes you pain, but at the same time causes you to turn to Christ, how much more the better is their absence from you? Open hand. Give time to change, not just time to charge. And then finally, the handshake. We've had thumbs up. Open hand. Now it's time for the handshake. Love means being quick to forgive, not forget a person. You see, by the time Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians, he's had word from Titus that the Corinthians in their time have learned and have changed. They have confronted sin in their community. They have disciplined. They have punished uh, someone who was causing destruction in the church community. Have a look there at verse 5 of chapter 2. You can see that there. He says, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused pain not so much to me, but to some degree, and not to exaggerate, to all of you. The punishment inflicted by the majority is sufficient for that person. So the church has woken up, the majority at least have woken up, and they have called out this particular sinful person in their community. Now, it's not clear who that particular person is, It could be the immoral man that's talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You know, the guy who's sleeping with his father's wife, which is not necessarily his immediate mother. It could be his stepmother. But either way, it's pretty gross uh, either. Or it could be one of the false teachers causing dysfunction and destruction uh, in the church. But they have been called out and they have been punished. Now, we don't know what the punishment was either. It's most likely excommunication, you know, kicked out of the church. But whatever it was... Paul now teaches the Corinthians that their posture towards this man that they have disciplined is not just forget about them, but to forgive him. That the punishment they have inflicted is sufficient and now they must gently restore him. Have a look at verse 6 again. He says, 
The punishment inflicted by the majority is sufficient for that person. As a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, this one may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Reaffirm your love to him. Forgive, not just forget about them. Now, I don't think that necessarily means that they were to welcome back this person immediately into the church life, let alone give him the position that he once had, particularly if he was a false teacher. It'd be like if we discovered the church treasurer was cooking the books you know, and, and sacked him from that position. We might forgive him and, and welcome him back into our community, but we don't necessarily give him access to the bank account uh, again. But neither does forgiveness mean that you just ignore that person, that you avoid them in the community or in the church itself, but you pursue them with love. Pursue them, as Paul says, with comfort. And that comfort is the same as in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It's the comfort of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that was true for the Corinthians, it's still true for us in our church today. Because what a tragedy it is. If we have called out sin in our community and a person has been so overwhelmed with grief as a result that they've just turned away, not just from us, but from Christ himself because we didn't then pursue them with love and grace and compassion and forgiveness. And in those last two verses today, verse 10 and 11, Paul gives us another reason to keep pursuing love. Have a look at it, verse 10. If you forgive anyone, I do too. For what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, it is for you in the presence of Christ. I have done this so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Now put yourself in the place of Paul. He's been copping a lot of flack from the Corinthians, but he says, I forgive. And he says, a good reason to forgive and to keep pursuing love, even if it's hurtful, is because if you don't, the devil wins. The devil wins. Because unforgiveness and being unloving often breeds resentment and bitterness, doesn't it? And left unchecked, it's like the flu. It is so contagious. If bitterness is allowed to just stir inside your heart, it has this nasty effect of infecting everything so that everything you see and anyone you come into contact with is just annoying and everything is negative. And when everything is negative and when you're so focused on yourself, do you know the one thing you're not doing then? Is doing the one thing that Christians ought to be doing. There are dead people walking in our community and we are focused on my needs and what I'm not getting and dead people are not hearing the word that can raise them to life. We are being distracted from our mission. And that's exactly what the devil wants us to do. Don't let him win. We need to stop fighting each other and start fighting him. And that begins by having this posture of love to one another. I love church. I've given my life to serving the church. But this side of heaven, church will be hard at times because people are difficult. Did you know that you're difficult at times? And I bet you know that I'm difficult at times as well. People will disappoint us. On Mother's Day, kids, our mothers sometimes disappoint us. Mothers on Mother's Day, your kids sometimes disappoint you. Our families can disappoint us. Even our brothers and sisters in Christ, even our pastors and leaders 
can frustrate us. Sometimes it is deliberate, yes, but most of the time it's just ignorance. But how we respond in those times of hurt is a great test of whether we are growing in the fruit of the Spirit. And you know when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, what's the first on the list? Love. Love. It's Mother's Day today, and I don't know how your day has been, mums or kids, but don't let the devil pull your family apart. Don't let the devil pull this church apart. Don't let him distract us from seeing our community as dead people walking that need to hear a message of life. Don't let him win. And as I said before, it starts with allowing God's love to fill our hearts again and then going out from our hearts through our hands in love, starting here with one another. So remember these signs today. How to love people when it's hard? Thumbs up. Don't always assume the worst. Assume the best. It's always a good starting point. Open hand. Give time for people to change and not just time to charge. And then handshake. When there's been a relationship breakdown, be quick to forgive and not just forget about the person. And imagine what our community could look like if we actually put all this into practice. Imagine a visitor from Minchinbury or Rudy Hill or Mount Druitt coming into our backyard and seeing not just a pack of wild dogs barking at each other and seeking to devour each other, but a community of domesticated pets who just are warm and affectionate with one another, who are so shaped by the love and grace of God that they can't help but overlook weaknesses and limitations. They speak the truth in love. They give time and they don't just charge. Can you imagine what that might look like? Because we live in a world where the natural posture of people is to bark at each other all day long and to tear each other apart. And we as a community of love, by the gospel, founded by Christ himself, have an opportunity to show something altogether different. Imagine the difference that we can make. Let's pray. Father, we're mindful again of the Lord Jesus' words. A new command I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. Father, help us to love. In Jesus' name.